The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning, Bethlehem. My name is Paul Delahunt. I serve as an elder here downtown. And I've got to say, I've been so eager to preach Colossians to you here this morning. This is my favorite book of the Bible. It's had a profound impact on my life, and I've just benefited from it so greatly. In 2007, I went down to the Campus Outreach Summer Beach Project in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Some of you here have attended that in the past. And uh, during that summer, God gripped me with Colossians. That was the theme book of that summer. And one of the verses that stuck with me even to this day was last week's sermon text. Therefore, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And it's continued to affect me since that time. So a couple of times in our small group here at church, we've gone through the book, and God has just given me a love for it. And so I'm excited to preach this morning. What do I love about it? I'll just note four things as we get going here. First, the gospel is so obvious and central. So Jesus is just showing up all over the place. The second thing is that it's really short, right? You can sit down and read it in like 10, 15 minutes, which is great. The third thing is that there's rich doctrine, but profound application. And all those things together combine to make my fourth thing, which is it's a great book to study with another person. And so I just invite you to consider, is there somebody in our church who might benefit if you were to initiate a study through Colossians? You could probably do it in three or four months, something like that. Just something to consider. And so when Pastor Kenny had proposed a few months ago pivoting to Colossians and holding out the sufficiency of Christ to one another, I was just so eager to do that. And that's what we want to see this morning, right? His sufficiency. So let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your word. Thank you for giving us everlasting life in your son. So we ask for your spirit to help us now. Bless your word as it goes forth. Cause it to dwell richly among us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is, uh, I would say, a doozy of a text. All right, and that's a technical theological term for there's a lot of meat here, right? There's a lot that's going on. And so I'm going to be speaking more rapidly than I would like to. And I would just invite you to follow along as we dig for treasure here in Colossians 2. The sermon title is How to Be Free. I've got four points. We'll look at them here shortly. But first, by way of introduction, I want to explain the title a little bit more. Verse 8 talks about, see to it that no one takes you captive. And that relates then to the end of our passage in chapter 15, but it's a little bit implicit. So go ahead and read verse 15. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So how does, how does captivity relate to that word, triumph? So triumph is referring to something that Jesus Christ accomplished. Uh, but it's an analogy to the Roman triumph, okay? So in ancient Rome, when a victorious general would return to the capital city having defeated his enemies, they'd have a victory parade through the city. If you've ever seen that old uh, uh, Charlton Heston movie, Ben-Hur from 1959, it's got a fantastic scene of a Roman triumph. And one of the prominent things about this parade is that there would be captives paraded through. Defeated enemies, rebel generals, whatever it was, they were in that parade. Some destined for execution and some destined for slavery. 
And there are two places in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul uses a, a Greek word to pull in this imagery of a Roman triumph, at least two that I'm aware of. And one is right here in Colossians 2. We just read it. If you look back in verse 10 of, of chapter 2, it says that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. And then in verse 15, it says that he leads the rulers and authorities in this triumphal victory parade, doesn't it? And so it's pretty clear from this context that what Paul's talking about are the demonic authorities, the spiritual powers, Satan and his minions. And so the glorious reality of, of verse 15 is that Christ has defeated those powers on the cross, and they cannot touch us in the way that it really matters, in particular with our sin. Amen? Amen. But the other New Testament passage that talks about the Roman triumph adds a little bit of a twist. It is 2 Corinthians 2.14, and I'll just read it for us here quickly. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. He leads us. So you see, Christians are also captives of Christ. Now, of course, this captivity is totally different than the captivity of the powers and authorities, right? I mean, they are destined for something absolutely different than what we are destined for in Christ. And yet, there we are, captives in this victory parade of Christ. And so we bring together Christ's triumph in, in Colossians 2.15 and the warning in verse 8 at the beginning of our passage. And here's a question that I want to pose. Who has taken you captive? What has seized your soul? Your master is either going to be an idol and the story of your life will be something like, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Or it will be Jesus Christ and the song of your soul will be, I am his forevermore. And we just sang, right? And so that brings me back to the title of the sermon. The only way to be free is to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's say it again. The only way to be free is to belong to Jesus Christ. It's a paradox. It's like so much of Christianity. The way up is the way down. Those who are lost are the ones who are found. And the way to have liberty is to be taken and bound. And so four points as we seek to belong to Christ. First, we go under and we join him by faith. Then we hone in on Christ-centered instincts. Then we watch out for the deceit of this world and look up at the one who takes our sins away. Now, how to be free? Go under, hone in. Uh, uh, what did I say? Go under, hone in, watch out, and look up. Okay, go under. If you want to be free, you're going to have to undergo death and resurrection with Jesus. In other words, you're called to go under in two ways. First, go under the knife, the knife of spiritual circumcision. And then second, go under the waters of baptism. And this is our longest point. So here we go. First, you have to go under the knife. Remember, God called Abraham to be the father of his chosen people. And he gave him the sign of circumcision to mark off this nation from all other nations. And then Christ came and he inaugurated a new covenant. And that circumcision became a matter of controversy. Like, what do you do with it, right? And so the early church met in Jerusalem 
and they determined that circumcision would no longer be a sign for God's people. And so when Paul brings up circumcision here in verse 11, he's doing it with imagery. He's talking about how you're becoming a Christian, and he says uh, it's a circumcision made without hands. It's imagery. By putting off the body of the flesh, the circumcision of Christ. Now, Luke 2 that tells, uh, tells us that Paul, or Luke 2 tells us that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, right? But that's not what Paul is talking about here. What I want to do is go back to a parallel passage in chapter 1, starting in verse 29, uh, starting in verse 19, excuse me. And listen carefully now as we read, and then we'll come back to chapter 2. 2 verse 19. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now go ahead and turn back to chapter 2, starting in verse 9. For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, is that sounding familiar? We just read it in chapter 1. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off, notice this, the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So let's restate both passages. In chapter 1, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ's body of flesh. That body of flesh hung on a cross and died. Why? To reconcile you to God and to make peace by his blood, which is just glorious. But then there's a little shift in chapter 2. Notice this little subtle shift. The whole fullness of deity dwells in Christ's body. And when that body of flesh was cut off or circumcised by death, your body was cut off also. The body of your flesh was cut off also. So chapter 1 is saying that Christ's death accomplished something for us. But chapter 2 is saying that it accomplished something in us. We have been uncircumcised in our flesh, verse 13, but now we have been joined to Christ in the circumcision of his flesh. And what this means is glorious. It means that in Christ's death on the cross, we were, so to speak, with him. He pulled your death forward into his on the cross. We, um, we often say something like, Jesus died so that we would live. And that's glorious, that's true. But it's even more profound to say something like this. Jesus died so that you would die. He died so that your flesh, the part of you that lives for this world, Paul calls it the flesh, would be cut off as Jesus was cut off with the righteous knife of the Father. Now, you'll notice that verses 11 and 12 are divided by a comma, and so far we've stopped short of going past that comma. So now let's read verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And what we should see here is that not only can we say, Christ died, I died, but we can say, Christ lives, I live. He was raised, I was raised. He is the firstborn from the dead, which means we're all coming too. God made him alive so that in Christ all shall be made alive. 
And so we can put it together. We were circumcised with him, we were buried with him, raised with him, and made alive with him. And so in other words, verse 10, we were filled in him. And I love the King James here. It says, and ye are complete in him. If you believe in Jesus, then your entire life is bound up with the crucified and risen Savior. So the old covenant sign of circumcision has been fulfilled in the head of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. And in its place, we have been given a new sign, the sign of baptism. And that's the second half of this first point. If you want to be free, you need to go under the waters of baptism. Now, this is a Baptist church. And ironically, it seems to me that Baptists are sometimes skittish about the glorious things we believe about baptism. Or sometimes we even turn baptism into something that's associated with us. So we might talk about it like, uh, or we might associate it with my testimony or my declaration or my step of discipleship or something like that. But baptism isn't mostly about those things. Baptism is simply the act of faith. It expresses what he has done in uniting us to his son in his death and resurrection. In other words, baptism is the, is the new covenant sign of your union with Christ. And so listen to the way our elder affirmation of faith describes it in EAF 12.3. We believe that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord by which those who have repented and come to faith express their union with Christ in his death and resurrection by being immersed in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is a sign of belonging to the new people of God, the true Israel, and an emblem of burial and cleansing, signifying death to the old life of unbelief and purification from the pollution of sin. And so hopefully you heard the language of sign and signify there as I was reading. Signs manifest reality. And I'm reminded of John 2. Think of when Jesus turned water to wine. It says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And so in baptism, God is manifesting your union with Christ. In the language of Colossians 2.12, baptism is a sign that through faith, you have died and been raised with Christ. Now, some Christian traditions, like Presbyterianism, for example, also want to say that baptism is a seal of the new covenant. And I think that language can be a little bit tricky. I think it's better to say the Holy Spirit is the seal of the new covenant. And that's why we have language like down payment and guarantee associated with the Spirit. But how do we have the Spirit? We have the Spirit through faith. And what is baptism but the act of faith? And so as you try to put New Testament language on it over and over and over again, you see baptism woven in with the Holy Spirit and with faith. And so for today, I think what I want to do is just use an illustration. An illustration is going to be an engagement ring. Now, I've heard lots of uh, sermon illustrations using wedding rings, but um, I want to use an engagement ring uh, here this morning. So when a man gets down on one knee and he offers a ring to a woman, what is he asking? He's saying, would you belong to me and I to you? And if she says yes, she is accepting him. If she accepts that ring, she's saying yes to him, right? Now, of course, you can be engaged without an engagement ring. You can take it on and off just like you can with a, a wedding ring. But in that moment of engagement, 
I don't think that's what's on her mind, right? Because we've all gotten the pictures and there's a hand here on his chest and there's something showing off and the caption of the picture says something like, he finally asked. Or if it's the guy sending the text, it's she said yes or something, right? And I guarantee you, when the woman wakes up the next morning, there's something on her finger and it reminds her of her new status. It reminds her that someone has asked for her hand. And this is why baptism in faith, uh, uh, baptism is like a ring in that way. It's a constant reminder to you. Dead with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, alive with Christ. It's the act of faith, looking to the promises and redemption of God. You can say, as surely as I was baptized, even so more surely do I belong body and soul in life and in death to God and to my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or in the language of Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so that's why baptism and faith are so closely linked in parallel fashion in Colossians 2.12. You were buried with Christ in baptism and you were raised with him through faith. Burial and resurrection with Christ go together and faith and baptism go together. Do you, do you see that? Baptism is such an enacted vision of union with Christ that frankly it makes very little sense to baptize anyone who doesn't have faith in Jesus. This high, almost like synonymous view of faith and baptism here is actually one of the strongest reasons for baptizing only believers. And so as we bring this kind of longer point to a close, I have five people in mind, five groups of people in mind. The first one is, if you're attracted to the covenant theology of, uh, of say, a Presbyterianism, and infant baptism holds out a certain logic to you, I would just say, personally, I know what you're feeling because I've been there. But I would want to hold out this text to say the covenant theology of Colossians 2 is actually a great reason for you to be a Baptist. Second group of people, if you've only been baptized as an infant, I would just humbly invite you to ask this question. Has my baptism manifested my union with Christ? or not. Third group, if you believe in Jesus and have not yet been baptized, then I want to say with Ananias to Paul in Acts 22, why do you wait? Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and be washed for the forgiveness or wash away your sins, calling on his name. Baptism is not a future step of discipleship for you. It's an urgent command. Fourth group, if you've been baptized as a believer, then rejoice in your baptism. Embrace the reality that you've been baptized into Christ Jesus. Leave any of that skittishness behind. The Bible is not shy about baptism, and neither should we. And then last, the fifth group. If you are wishing that Jesus Christ was yours, then listen to the invitation of Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust in Jesus. He can wash it away for you. Okay, so first we go under and then we hone in. This expands on point number one. It'll kind of sound a little bit familiar, similar. 
It is perfectly captured by verses 6 and 7. Therefore, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Paul is going to apply all of that as he moves into verse 8. So check it out. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So in other words, if we're going to be free from the lies and deceit of this world, we need to hone in on Christ. We need to hone in on Christ. Home in sounds different. I'm talking about hone in, and that has to do with developing a skill. Okay? We need to develop an instinct that Christ would be central. And as we move into the future as a church, my own personal hope and desire is that we as a community would grow in this, that we would grow in our fluency in Jesus Christ. And we've got to see this in the text. We have to watch Paul hone in on Christ. And so to do that, we need to zoom out and sort of see the Colossians landscape. Okay? Last week, if you remember, Pastor Kenny reminded us that there's this pivot going on in Colossians chapter 2. All the way up till now, there's been indicatives. It's a lot of, this is what happened. This is what God did. And then the first commands begin to show up starting in chapter 2. And that's awesome. We need those indicatives of chapter 1 to set up everything else. So I hope that was a blessing to you. And what I want to do is just turn the diamond of Scripture a few facets over and ask a different question. How do we get from the middle of Colossians 1 all the way into the commands of chapter 3? What's the bridge? This is important not just for our passage today, but for understanding Colossians as a whole. So go ahead and turn to chapter 1, and we will start in verse 25. Chapter 1, verse 25. When Paul begins to describe his ministry, he says that his job is to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So this concept of mystery is critical. It's clear from the text that Paul's not talking about something you can't figure out, right? Rather, it's something that was hidden for a while, but God has now made it clear. And so as Paul continues, we see in verse 26 that Paul says this, and this should blow us away. To them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this, I mean, it almost doesn't compute. The God of the universe has a mystery, and he kept it hidden for a long time. And then he revealed it, and it could be anything. The God of the universe has a mystery, and what is it? It's Christ in you. Now, that's a direct flight from uh, 126 all the way over to 3, verse 3, the beginning of chapter 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so to personalize it, Paul Delahunt doesn't exist anymore. There is no me apart from Christ. What's real? Christ in Paul. Christ in me. Christ in you. That's what's real. Your life is hidden with Christ. Your life is Christ. 
And so Christian, you don't have a life anymore apart from Jesus. There is no you over here and Jesus over here, here and you're somehow related to him in some way. No, he is in you and that's the mystery. There's been a fundamental change in your being and so therefore you're not free to be anything other than one who has been irreversibly and indestructibly linked and united to Jesus Christ. It's just a glorious thing. And so what Paul is showing us between chapters one and three is how to hone the skill, the instinct of living in the freedom and mystery of Christ in you. That's what he's doing. And there are four commands in chapter two, aren't there, that explicitly say, let no one do this or that to you. We see them in verses 4, 8, 16, and 18, and then there's a fifth one implied in verse 20. And I make the case that even though verses 4 and 20 aren't structured like commands, we should receive them like commands. And so we'll go through them real briefly now, and what I want us to focus on is how Paul hones in on Christ. He's going to say, let no one do this to you. Instead, this is what Christ is, okay? So verse 4, let no one delude you with plausible arguments. Instead, verse 2, reach all the riches of understanding in Christ, and verses 6 and 7, walk in him. Verse 8, let no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Instead, think according to Christ, honing in on the one who, verse 10, fills you, verse 3, with all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Third command, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Instead, verse 17, forsake these shadows for the substance of Christ. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. Instead, verse 19, hold fast to Christ, the head. And then in verse 20, let no one subjugate you to regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Instead, earlier in verse 20, remember that you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, the same elemental spirits we saw back in verse 8. So Paul is showing us what it looks like to be fluent in the gospel, to see how the person and the work of Christ are supposed to fill you up so you can live in liberty and maturity. This is what it means to live according to Christ, or in the Greek, katakristan. I want to be a katakristan Christian, don't you? I want to live according to Christ. And this is what pushes us to that destination in chapter 3, where Christ is our life, and so we put to death the flesh, and we put on Christ-likeness. And all of this in our text today explains that sudden transition from verse 8 to verse 9. I don't know if you've ever felt the whiplash that you get from that, but I mean, how do we get from philosophy and empty deceit to the incarnation in one verse with no warning? Right? What's, how is he thinking? Well, it makes all the sense in the world if the mystery is that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. That's why he says it like this. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. So in other words, Colossians, are you tempted by the Gnostic heresy to reject the physical world as evil? Red light, Jesus Christ has a body and you've been filled in him. 
Or are you tempted to become captive to some sort of secret, hidden knowledge? Dead end. Jesus Christ holds all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and you already have him. So hone in. Hone in on Christ. All right, so go under, hone in, and now watch out. So verse 8 says, see to it. And the Greek word there is blepita, which is a fun little word, marvelous word. It shows up all over the New Testament, something like 33 times. And in a few places, it's translated in a way that has to do with your eyesight or per, like perception, seeing. And most of the time, it has this meaning in our text today. It's a warning. See to it. We see both meanings in, in Matthew chapter 24 during Passion Week, which is our time of year, right? Uh, the disciples were admiring the temple and Jesus said to them, you see all these, do you not? Okay, that's Blepita right there. But then two verses later, it shows up again very differently. It sounds like our text today. See that no one leads you astray. Some of the most direct warnings in the Bible come to us, or I should say the New Testament come to us in the form of this little word, Blepita. Listen, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you used, use, it will be measured to you. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out. We should watch out, Bethlehem, in these days, should we not? Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Pay attention, beware. Be on guard. Take care. Look carefully. Watch out. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So hear me now. When the Bible gives you a warning, it's because we need to hear it. He's saying, you're at risk for whatever I'm warning you about. Right? We are vulnerable to captivity then if the command is to watch out. You know, I mentioned in 2007, I went down to the Campus Outreach Summer Project. <clears throat> and I'll never forget a particular moment from that summer. Uh, Matt Reagan was a guy on staff here uh, with Campus Outreach and an elder. He's in South Carolina now. And I'll never forget, at the end of the summer, we were all gathered together, and he did something. He said, you know, we've been doing this now for some time, these projects, and our data's pretty good. In five or ten years, barring the grace of God in a unique way, 50% of you will no longer be walking with Jesus Christ. And so he went like this. That means you will and you won't. You will, you won't. You will, and he, he did that. And you know, I look back, I think back, it's been 15 years, I see faces, I think of people, and 50% seems about right. What puts us at risk? Isn't it that the things that would take us captive are compelling in some way? The arguments are plausible. The philosophy is intriguing. People you love are applying social, emotional, maybe even spiritual pressure to accept some form of legalism or licentiousness. And it's all here in Colossians 2. So when Paul gets to verse 23, he says that these things have the appearance of wisdom, right? But what's the bottom line? They are of no value. 
No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It looks good. It doesn't work. And it leaves you in captivity. Now it's crucial to notice just how all-encompassing this command is. Paul makes a point of saying that we shouldn't let anyone kidnap us with this kind of junk, right? No one. See to it that no one takes you captive. And so that certainly starts with this pulpit. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So yes, you should trust your leaders. Especially, I mean, we need to hear that today. Trust in leaders is a hard thing for, for us as, as people, it seems. That's a whole different sermon, whole different series probably. But you need to make sure that you are so honed in on Christ that no spiritual leader takes you captive by their own philosophy or some form of deceit. But this pulpit's just one area of life. I mean, if the, if the Colossians were at risk in their day, what about our, us and ours? We live in the digital age, right? So I saw a study that the average American, I think it was 1,000 people, not sure how scientific it was that they did the study with, but it suggests the average American checks their phone 350 times a day. 350 times a day. And when you're on your phone, I wonder if you would hazard a guess as to how much deceit you might encounter on any given day. I I wouldn't have the faintest idea. Maybe God will reveal that to us someday, I don't know. But there's not a study about that, right? I do know one thing. When I'm on my phone, I encounter an avalanche of ideas that appear to be of Christ and really are not. And that's nothing new. That's exactly what the Colossians were faced with. Quasi-Christian ideas, right? The Gnostics wrote Gospels about Jesus. If you pricked a Judaizer, he would bleed Bible. And so how about you? Might any of your favorite content seem to be of Christ, but perhaps is not? This takes us back to the second point, right? Hone in on Christ. Now some of the biggest lies to watch out for these days are about freedom. That's one reason I chose the sermon title. Now don't get me wrong. I think political freedom and liberty are great blessings to a people. Not saying they're not. But in our society, it's not hard to see where freedom has become a God. You remember uh, when Paul Poteet preached for us a couple of weeks ago, he quoted the, the Casey decision from the Supreme Court. This is a professing Christian, or a nominal Christian, I don't know, Christian background, and he wrote this. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. God's mystery is Christ in you. What's, what's that mystery? I, uh, you're the master of your own fate. You're the captain of your soul. These things are at odds. And every day we swim in these waters. Financial freedom. Sexual freedom. Personal freedom. Political freedom. Freedom of choice. Freedom of expression. And on and on and on it goes. And it seems like one of the biggest manifestations of this idol of freedom is the demand that everybody else must affirm me as I pursue my freedom. And that reveals our Achilles heel of deceit, a, second, or a, a Colossians 2, 8 kind of deceit. There are deceivers and charlatans everywhere, certainly out there. 
But what about you? Right? What about me? Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We must guard against the liar in here. Let no one take you captive, including yourself. It gets lost in English, but that word blepita is actually a plural verb. So when Paul is saying, watch out, he's saying, y'all watch out. Y'all keep an eye on each other. Y'all see to this as a group. And that reminds me immediately of Hebrews 3. It says, take care, brothers. That's blepita again right there. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So watching out is a community endeavor. So many of you are in a small group here at Bethlehem or some other gathered community. And this is one of the most important things a connected small group can do for one another, is to watch out for each other. So here's what it looks like with the men in my small group. We, we talk about having a mental dossier for each other, which maybe sounds weird. It doesn't need to. All it means is, into that dossier, and I'll use myself, should go answers to the questions that would sound something like this. What kinds of philosophy and empty deceit is Paul vulnerable to? What do I hear from his lips and see in his life that makes me wonder if he could fall into captivity? See, I need my community to be thinking for me like that so that when a time comes, they can speak in to my life. This kind of thing is a direct application of Colossians 2, verse 8. And if your small group isn't doing that for each other right now, then I just encourage you to graciously and winsomely and very humbly just seek to change that. We have to watch out for each other. But friends, as, community, as important as community is, it cannot save you. It cannot rid you of your sins. If you want that to happen, you're going to have to look up. You're going to have to look up. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. In verse 8, it says that this philosophy and empty deceit are rooted in human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. Now, if you were to look down at verse 20 or over, over in uh, Galatians 4, you'd see that what he's talking about is man-made religion apart from the grace of God. What is man-made religion? Well, it's an effort to bury your trespasses through your own efforts. And you cannot do that. There is no freedom to be had there. You'll be left with a whole lot of effort, sweat on your bow, failure all over the place, and a lot of guilt and shame. And that's some of you right now. The record of your debts is looming up against you. You can feel it looking at you all the time. And you know what this text is saying to you? You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, raise your head, O sinner. He's saying, look up. Look to me. And what do you think you would see if you were to come to the cross and turn your eyes upon Jesus? Well, it's a very messy thing. 
there's a lamb being slaughtered. And there's a little placard above his head that says, King of the Jews. And there are two of the largest parchments you've ever seen nailed to each of his hands. To one hand is a parchment that has the record of all of your debts from the beginning of your life all the way up until this moment. And nailed to the other hand is a record of all the sins that you haven't committed yet, but you will tomorrow. And you notice that Jesus is looking at you, right at you. And the twinkle in his eye, those bloodshot eyes, is saying to you, don't you know, these go to the tomb with me. And so I would ask you, whatever life philosophy you've chosen for yourself, can it do that for you? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's nothing more freeing in all the world than to belong to Jesus Christ and to be a captive to his cross. Look up and see the bleeding Savior giving his life to save you from your sins. Go under the knife of spiritual circumcision. Go under the waters of baptism, having repented of sin, and put your faith in Christ. And then hone in on Christ, watching out for deceit. This is how we will be free. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you sent your only son, your beloved son, so that whoever would believe in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Think of Abraham and Isaac up on Mount Moriah. Isaac with the knife about to slay his son. And you said to him, now I know, now I know that you love me. And Lord, we can know you because you did not spare your only son from that righteous knife. And so we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.